History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in Central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 438th episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast, Ghost Tours for the Theater of the Mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Kelly, on this episode, we're going to be featuring the Glore Psychiatric Museum. I just love that name, Glore. It sounds like gore. Yeah. Glore. I agree. Mixed together. <laughs> gore and Lore had a baby and called it Glore. There you go. Actually, it's the last name of the doctor who set up this museum, which is in an old asylum. And, you know, a lot of asylums out there have been set up as museums that you can go through. But this one really is a museum. It's got all kinds of displays and stuff like that. And, of course, a few hauntings going on. Looking forward to it. Before we get into that, we want to welcome into the Spooktacular crew, Danica, Jane, Aaron with an E, Taylor, and Valley. Welcome to the crew. And now this moment, Noddity. The moment in oddity was suggested by Janae McCabe. There's an insect known as the wheelbug. It's found in Florida, but is also known to be found from Rhode Island to California and further south into Mexico and Guatemala. This insect is part of the assassin bug family and measures one to one and a quarter inches long. It's a dark and robust creature with long legs and antennae, a stout beak, large eyes on a slim head, and a prominent thoracic semicircular crest that resembles a cogwheel. As steampunk fans, this insect caught our eye with its cogwheel feature immediately. These are largely considered beneficial insects as they prey upon many garden pests that harm crops and blooms, although they've also been known to prey upon bees and ladybugs and sometimes are cannibalistic. Interestingly, some brave souls have been known to keep these specimens as pets. However, be forewarned, a bite from these little buggers has been compared to being more painful than a bee or wasp sting. But those who enjoy this insect state that once adapted, they are very unlikely to bite if handled gently. Although these insects can give many gardeners the creepy crawlies, the only insect species in the United States that sports a cogwheel as part of its exoskeleton certainly makes it odd. She's just getting started. And now, this month in history. In the month of June, on the 1st, in 1869, Thomas Edison patented the electrographic vote recorder. 
This invention was registered with patent number 90,646 and was meant to be a voting machine for Congress. Legislative bodies would be able to record their votes accurately and instantaneously with this invention. Unfortunately, his creation stirred little interest and was never manufactured. This was the first of Edison's 1,093 U.S. patents. Some of Edison's most famous patents are the light bulb, phonograph, motion picture camera, and storage battery. He meticulously recorded his work in 4,000 notebooks to protect his intellectual property, but also with hopes to influence generations of inventors. Despite the lackluster interest in his vote recorder, Thomas Edison went on to be one of the most inspiring inventors of all time. The term asylum means refuge, and that is what lunatic asylums were meant to be, places of safety for those experiencing various forms of mental illness. But as we have found, very few asylums did more than house the mentally ill and used them as guinea pigs for various forms of torture. That is why so many of them have spiritual residue. The Glore Psychiatric Museum in St. Joseph, Missouri, is a location that documents both in words and visual recreations what life in an asylum was like for many people. Objects from many former asylums have become part of the collection and possibly have brought along attachments. Join us as we discuss the history of the former asylum that was here, the history of asylum treatments, and the hauntings involved. of asylums began in Europe in the 17th century. Treatment of the mentally ill before this time was horrendous. As we know, there were a lot of people who thought that you were demon-possessed, some kind of a witch, so these people were burned at the stake or hanged just because they were having some mental illness issues. Sadly, yes. The age of reason should have brought a time of better care for those suffering from mental illness, but that was anything but the case. Rather than being places of refuge and care, asylums became like human zoos, places to store those not fit for society and observe their odd behavior. Bethlehem Royal Hospital was the earliest official mental asylum, opening their doors in 1247 in London. In later years, the asylum opened up their doors and charged for public viewings. Why take a stroll through the park when you can walk through the local asylum and tease the patients? Good grief. Bethlehem Royal Hospital charged two pennies each for this kind of access. The doors leading into these areas were nicknamed the Penny Gates for that reason. And while it's horrifying to think people were walking through these places unsupervised, imagine what happened when the public had no access and asylums could do what they wanted, unfettered, with no public oversight. And as a little, I don't know if you could call this a fun fact, but you know the word bedlam, Kelly? Yes. It means uproar, confusion, that kind of thing. It's actually derived from this hospital's nickname. Oh, wow. Francis Farquhar was the royal governor of Virginia in 1758 and in 1766. 
He called on the House of Burgesses to establish a public hospital for confining and treating people. Quote, Deprived of their reason, a poor unhappy set of people who are deprived of their senses and wander about the countryside, terrifying the rest of their fellow creatures. The House of Burgesses agreed that a place needed to be built. The first public hospital for the mentally ill in America opened in October 1773 in Williamsburg, Virginia. We might have to find that place when we're up there. You think? <laughs> <laughs> and asylums continued to open throughout the United States. The Missouri General Assembly approved $200,000 for the creation of a second asylum in the state in 1872. They chose the city of St. Joseph as a site for the State Lunatic Asylum No. 2, which opened on November 9, 1874. The original plan was a Kirkbride building that would house 275 patients in 32 dormitories in 76 individual rooms. But the hospital actually started with 25 patients. Thomas Kirkbride had designed these plans for asylums to provide healing through architecture with lots of light. The wings were staggered to allow sunlight into all areas. I mean, it really is nice architecture for people, especially, you know, if you're depressed and stuff. I imagine sunlight can do a lot for you. Unfortunately, even though these were nicely designed buildings, what happened inside of them was anything but nice. So you can do all kinds of great stuff with the architecture. But if the people inside are being abused, well, the first superintendent was Dr. George C. Catlett who'd been a medical purveyor for the Confederate Army and oversaw the treatment of soldiers for several years. He wrote of the hospital that they were, quote, taking it from mere name, bare walls, untenanted, and unfurnished halls into a systematically arranged operating institution prepared to take its position in the benign firmament with its sister associates and to be consecrated for all time to the noble work of reviving hope in the human heart and dispelling the portentous clouds that envelope and penetrate the intellects of minds diseased. Wow, that is a very wordy way to say we want to help out people who are having a little bit of mental issues. Yeah, no kidding. Two years after opening, the asylum had 293 patients. This was on the route out west, and families occasionally dropped off problem family members along the way. A new wing was added at this time, and this was for more violent patients. This brought 120 more beds, which were eventually increased to 250 beds. A fire damaged much of the original Kirkbride building in 1879, but no one was killed thanks to the efforts of the staff. A new hospital building was constructed near the burned shell of the former asylum, and the new asylum was opened in 1880. This new building could house more patients and had a bowling alley, billiards room, and gym. And like many of the other asylums in the country, this one was completely self-sufficient with its own livestock and crops on a farm, a slaughterhouse, poultry house, and greenhouse. They only needed to purchase sugar and salt. Dr. Charles Woodson became the new superintendent in 1890, and he brought some reforms with him. He asked to have a separate hospital building to be built for patients with contagious diseases. A typhoid outbreak in 1893 was kept at a minimum because of this action. Woodson also was behind the building of a power plant on the property and getting a proper sewage system. Apparently, everything was just flowing into a little ravine behind the building. And, well, that's probably why we had a typhoid outbreak. Uh, loverly. Ugh. He also installed pipes with small holes around the porch. And when the weather was warm, staff would run water through them to produce artificial rain, which helped to calm the patients. Isn't that a neat idea? I think that's ingenious. I almost feel like we should do that on our back patio. Oh, I would love it. Just you know that. Just put a that. little pipe around the back, cut some <laughs> yes. holes in it, and then we could have our own rain whenever we wanted. 
Of course, the water company will be like, what in the heck is going on at your house? This is true. This was a type of hydrotherapy. In 1899, the name was changed to the St. Joseph State Hospital. This took away the terms lunatic and asylum, thankfully. Because, of course, now we know those are derogatory type terms. But at the time, they, you know, lunatic wasn't necessarily considered a bad thing. And asylum really is supposed to mean a place of safety. But unfortunately, they made that term not come across that way anymore. Right. Yeah. When people come here from another country and stuff, usually they're looking for asylum or people would call that if they ran into a church. They'd say, I'm claiming asylum so that they could get away from trouble. Dr. Woodson would move on in 1907. And Dr. W.F. Kuhn came on board and he brought with him an exercise regimen. All patients were required to walk a mile every day. And if you were really fit and wanted to, you could go for three miles. He also started staffing the men's wards with women, which was considered controversial at the time, but proved to be brilliant. Because, Kelly, the male patients were better behaved and more well-groomed with women around. (laughs) Why am I not surprised? I am not surprised either. You got some pretty nurses walking around in the hallways. I could see why they'd be like, maybe I should wash my hair today. Kuhn also implemented a non-restraint policy. The farm expanded under Dr. Kuhn's watch, and patients started making things like furniture that could be sold to raise money for the operations of the hospital. As the decades passed, the asylum became more crowded. Getting enough staff was always hard and became even harder during the World Wars when staff joined the military. The Red Cross Grey Ladies were brought in to help with the understaffing, but there were never enough beds or staff. After World War II, there were 2,485 patients in a mental hospital that was meant to serve far fewer people, and the staff turnover was very high. This led to a series of experimental treatments being tried on patients, including lobotomies. Dr. Walter Freeman arrived at the St. Joseph Mental Hospital on July 8, 1949. That day, Freeman performed 10 lobotomies in three hours, and the local paper reported that this gave patients hope that they could return back to their homes and their lives. (laughs) Because yes, why would severing their frontal cortex (sighs) not make them perfectly fine? We've talked about Dr. Walter Freeman on previous asylum episodes, so we're not going to get real deep into his history once again. But this man was clearly, if he wasn't doing lobotomies, I think he'd be a serial killer because you have to be sadistic to do what he was doing to people. But he sure got rich off it. So, hey. And as we know, lobotomies were not a good thing. Dr. Willis McCann came to the hospital in the 1950s, and this era would end the labor work for patients. Most would be left to wander the halls or stare at TVs all day long. Tranquilizing drugs would be used to keep patients even. Climate control would come to the hospital. Yeah, so now they have AC, but um, they don't get to do anything. Now, I could see saying we don't want to do the labor stuff anymore if you were forcing them to do it, if you were overworking them or something. But I think having them outside farming and stuff, it probably gave them a little bit of purpose to their life. Exactly. But walking around like zombies and just staring at TVs while you're drooling into a cup, that is so much better. Clearly, I don't understand why we switched over from that. Right. Doesn't make sense to me. Towards the end of the 1950s, a Dr. George Glore came to the hospital. He eventually became the director. And in 1967, he started a little museum in a ward of the St. Joseph State Hospital. This became the Glore Psychiatric Museum and was an extensive collection of implements used in the care of psychological disorders dating all the way back to the 16th century and carrying up to the 19th century. 
Glor spent most of his 41-year career with the Missouri Department of Mental Health gathering his collection. And really, his purpose in putting this out there was not only to educate people, but I, I think he really wanted to show this is what has happened to people through the years. So it's not meant to glorify the treatments that these people had. It's meant to horrify you. And as we know, if you are educated about history, hopefully you will not repeat it again. This is true. Yep. He retired in the 1990s. Most patients had been released by the early 1990s from the asylum here. In 1993, the Rents Correctional Farm was damaged in a flood, and the 150 inmates were brought here temporarily. But the move proved to be permanent. In 1994, Missouri approved a bond to allow the asylum to be converted into a jail, and today it houses around 600 inmates, mostly serving time for drug charges, and this is called the Western Reception Diagnostic and Correctional Center. The Glore Psychiatric Museum was moved into another building on the property, which had been like the former, I guess, where they did surgeries and such. The rest of the patients were moved to a new facility in 1997 that is across the street from the original campus and was named Northwest Missouri Psychiatric Rehabilitation. The Psychiatric Museum documents the times when patients were kept busy with menial tasks like sewing, cooking, and farming. But they also got to hold dances, play croquet and board games, and exercise on gymnastic equipment. The museum displays many artifacts from the mental hospital that include uniforms, medical equipment, artwork, and photographs. One exhibit tells the story of a man who spent 72 years as a patient in the hospital. Can you imagine? I mean, that basically was his entire life. He had right. to have almost been here from the time he was a child. And a lot of the time when people got dropped off here, the staff would say, can you uh, bring us the clothes that you want them buried in? Wow. Because they knew those people were never going to leave. That's they were going to so be here sad. for the rest of their lives. And of course, most family members more than likely did not ever come to visit them. So you can just see this was a feeling of being left and alone and abandoned. Just uh, you can see why you've got some crazy energy going on here. Yeah, pretty horrible. And now a little break for a word about one of our sponsors. There's another exhibit featuring thousands of empty cigarette packs in a cage. Apparently, a nurse had told a patient that empty cigarette packs could be redeemed for a new wheelchair. So he saved them even though the nurse had been lying. I don't know if she was just trying <laughs> to keep him busy or what. I mean, why would you oh, tell somebody that? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I laugh, but if he really, truly thought that that was the case, I feel bad for him. Well, she keep, have... keep reading. Okay. The staff did eventually get him a new wheelchair for his efforts, which came to 100,000 packs. I mean, that is a lot of cigarettes. Yes, it is. I mean, who was smoking all those cigarettes? And he had to be going Probably around to like there. everybody. Can I have your cigarette pack? I'm sure. It reminds me of when the boys wanted to go to Costa Rica and they were saving all the water bottles, recycling them. And Austin would come home from, I don't even know what elementary grade he was. Or no, I think it was junior high. But he'd come home with like 20 water bottles shoved into his backpack <laughs> along, along with his lunch and box and his uh, books and everything. He wanted to make sure he was going on that trip. Didn't have to be smuggled in my luggage. <laughs> <laughs> and this wasn't necessarily a wheelchair that was for him. The way that I read it is it was a new wheelchair for the building, but it was dedicated in this ah. gentleman's honor. Okay, well, that's nice. Another exhibit has an old TV stuffed full of 525 written notes. 
A patient thought he could communicate with the people on TV through these notes. So they realize there's something wrong with the TV. Why is it not working? And they bring in an electrician and he opens up the back of the TV. and They Good see all these grief. notes in there. He's like, no wonder the TV doesn't work anymore. A more disturbing display is a stomach contents one. A patient was suffering from pica and liked to swallow nails and other objects. This patient ended up swallowing 1,400 metal objects, including nails, screws, pins, bottle caps, bolts, and buttons. She died on the operating table when the items were being removed. Can you imagine surviving, swallowing all that crap, and then you die because of surgery? No, I, I, I can't imagine any of it, actually. Someone arranged the objects into what looks like an ancient sculpture of a bursting sun. Visitors can even buy a postcard featuring this um, sculpture. <laughs> Who the hell came up with that idea? First of all, I would not want to save all that crap. But then who sat there and went, hmm, I think I could make something constructive with all this. Uh, yeah, nah, I don't know. <laughs> Why not make a sculpture? And aye, then aye. they made it into a postcard and people buy them I all know. the time. <laughs> what is wrong with Who people? are you sending that to? Your enemies? This is what I'm going to do to you. Now, in the research that I did here, it seems to me that things were not as bad here at the state hospital number two as they were in some of these other asylums with the different torturous things that they would do to people. But, of course, this museum is going to reveal how patients who weren't docile were treated throughout the years in all the various asylums out there, especially, you know, going back to your 16th and 17th century. We know they loved torturing back then anyway. Those that were harder to maintain were locked away from the public and restrained and basically tortured in a variety of ways. Chains, straitjackets, cages, and Utica cribs were used. We have talked about Utica cribs in the past, but just to refresh everyone's memory on these. These were popular in asylums during the latter half of the 19th century. The Utica crib was invented in 1845 by Dr. M.H. Abanel, who worked at the Marseille Lunatic Asylum and was introduced at the New York State Lunatic Asylum at Utica in 1846 by the first medical superintendent there, Dr. Amariah Brigham. And that's why it's called the Utica crib, because this is the first place where it was used. The device was archaic at best and torture at worst. Different institutions designed different cribs, but they all basically were coffin-sized, enclosed boxes with wood slats or metal screening that latched closed. So imagine a baby crib, because that's where they get the term from, only make it just tall enough for you to lay down flat in it. Horrible. So probably maybe a foot, foot and a half tall, something like that. And as I said, a patient could only lie flat inside and you could barely roll over. Some of them were big enough that they could roll onto their side, but not many. Superintendents that approved the use of the contraptions defended them by pointing out that all varieties of restraints were used on patients and this was just another form. They also pointed out that violent patients would become calm and stop acting out after hours of confinement in the crib. Oh, my word. As the years progressed, there was enough of an outcry that the lids were removed from many of the cribs. Dr. William A. Hammond fought to remove all mechanical restraints from asylums. He wrote of the Utica crib, It's like a child's crib with slotted sides, 18 inches deep, 6 feet long, and 3 feet wide. It has a slotted lid which shuts with a spring lock. A lunatic put in it can barely turn over. There's not much space between the patient's head and the lid, as if he were in a coffin. 
He's kept in the crib at the will of an attendant, the key being in the possession of the latter and not of a physician. Patients have sometimes died in these cribs. Dr. Mysert, who is an authority, says the crib is a most barbarous and unscientific instrument because there's already a tendency to a determination of blood to the brain in excited forms of insanity, which is increased by the horizontal position of the crib and the struggles of the patient. The crib was introduced by the superintendent of the Utica Asylum. The padded room could always be substituted for the crib. Yeah, that to me seems like it would be better. I mean, uh, yeah, it just <laughs> I'd much rather be in a padded room than this kind of contraption. Yeah. And what he's saying is putting them into this is going to make matters worse. Any form of torture, because a lot of people, when they go through trauma, that's what causes them to slip into some kind of mental illness. So you're causing these people a trauma. So it's definitely not going to make whatever's going on with them better. And it more than likely is going to make it worse. And that's basically what he's saying. Now, this is a difficult topic. Some patients needed some kind of restraint to protect them, especially at night, and also to protect the staff. Sure, I can understand that. I used to work at an Alzheimer's care facility, and we always had to lock the doors. Anytime we were going through a door in a wing or anything like that, we always had to make sure that we locked everything behind us. And you think to yourself, well, it's horrible. You keep locking all these people in, but we're protecting them because if they wander and get outside, you know, who knows what could happen to them. We need to do something to restrain these people. And I would much rather see somebody have to spend a little bit of time in a padded room than to have them tranquilized to a point that they're catatonic. A lot of these doctors thought the crib was better than bed restraints. Wow. Perhaps it would not have been as objectionable if it were bigger. Still, I'm not quite sure. You know, I, I just... Uh, right. But, but there were doctors who thought that would make patients more able to get hurt if the Utica crib was bigger. For some patients, the Utica crib might have been helpful for them, but as is the case with any kind of treatment or device, the possibility of abuse can be real trouble. I'm imagining a parent, you know, telling their child they need a few minutes in time out. So you put them in the chair or wherever for a few minutes, which is fine. You know, 10 minutes in a Utica bed might be fine, but hours, days, weeks. Terrible. Uh, what was it? Was it Peoria State Hospital that I talked about that woman that they had there that had been kept in a Utica crib? Not necessarily at that hospital, but somewhere else for so much time that her limbs had just withered and she couldn't even walk or anything. Just awful. Many patients were left for hours and even days like this. The Utica crib was far from being the worst implement, however, used on patients in asylums. There was the bath of surprise, which was a large bathtub or tank with a platform in the middle that the patient would lie down upon. This platform could easily be submerged in the water, which was ice cold. I guess that's why it's called the bath of surprise. I would say so. Then there's the giant patient treadmill, which was like a human-sized hamster wheel made of wood. Patients were said to be able to walk their worries away. But again, this was abuse for patients who were not able to remain still. The wheel was used to exhaust them with exercise. There was the fever cabinet that was lined with rows of high-wattage light bulbs so the patient's body temperature could be raised and kill viruses like syphilis. Great. We're just yeah. going to burn it out of you. Yeah. The lunatic box was a more extreme form of the Utica bed. This was an upright, coffin-like box in which patients were confined. The tranquilizer chair was the worst form of confinement. This looked similar to an old electric chair, with patients having the hands and feet locked into restraints and then a hood was put over their head. This chair had a built-in portable toilet, 
which seems to indicate that a patient would be left in this chair for hours, most probably naked. Benjamin Rush, the father of American psychiatry, designed this chair. And then there were the rectal dilators. I have no idea what those were used for. I don't want to know what they were used for, but I've got to think that you are some kind of sadomasochistic something or another if you're using those on people. Yes. There was a morgue on site at the St. Joseph Mental Hospital, and many patients were buried on the grounds. The first burial took place on December 12, 1874, and the last burial was in October 1949. The cemetery probably has 2,000 burials, but only several hundred headstones. And it's said to be maintained to this day. They have tried to get more headstones for the people that are there. There was a time when they were knocking all the headstones over and burying them because it made it easier to take care of the grounds. Oh, good grief. I hate that. Yeah, And I think they realized that's really stupid. Did some of the patients decide to stay on in the afterlife? Are there attachments to some of the artifacts within the museum? No one knows for sure the answers, but many people have experienced strange things in the museum. The building itself had once been the surgery building, so people did die here and lobotomies were given here. Dr. Glore himself claimed to experience strange things in his museum. The apparition of a man has been seen near the elevators and he usually breaks into a run and screams. Museum employees, volunteers, and visitors all claim to hear disembodied screaming throughout the building. And bursts of cold air have been felt. The disembodied laughing of children is heard, as well as the sounds of crying and whimpering. The soft voice of a woman has been heard asking for help. The spirit of an elderly man is seen walking the hallways, and a well-dressed male apparition is seen on the third floor. Sensitive visitors claim to feel intense feelings of despair. The basement is said to be the most haunted part of the building. We've heard that the freezers in the morgue are still kept cold. You never know when you might need an emergency (laughs) morgue. Oh my goodness. Which obviously gives it that extra creep factor. No kidding. (laughs) A male apparition down here asks visitors what they're doing. The sound of a gurney is heard down here as well. The motion detector in the basement goes nuts at random times when no one's supposed to be in the basement. EVP has caught a man screaming, get out. Troy Taylor of American Hauntings visited the museum with a small group of people one night, and he walked away from the group to visit a Civil War medical display. He heard disembodied footsteps coming down the hallway. It sounded like they were coming from someone wearing hard-soled shoes. And this was coming from behind him, so he glanced behind himself and saw that the corridor was completely empty. The footsteps continued to come towards him and then walked past him and continued into the darkness down the hallway. That would be really weird. I I don't know if I would keep standing there (laughs) if I heard the footsteps coming right at me. Three women in the group passed a room with the door closed and they heard voices inside. They assumed some other members of the group were investigating in there, so they kept going. But one of the women went back just to verify that someone was in the room. When she opened the door, she found no one in the room. Troy recounts the experiences of a woman named Becky Ray in his book, Cabinet of Curiosities 3. She'd heard knocks on the third floor. She said, while it may have been coincidence, the knocking corresponded with not only our request for knocks, but how many knocks. We tracked the source of the sound down to a door that was locked. At this point, we all took turns listening at the door, and several of us heard what sounded like a child's voice coming from the other side. A staff member unlocked the door, and the office behind was completely empty. Goodness. And I think one of the reasons why Troy Taylor was in here is he actually takes groups in there to do ghost hunts. Ah. I saw Ghost Hunts USA also goes in here and does ghost hunts, too. So it is possible to go in there and do some paranormal investigating. 
Glore Psychiatric Museum has been named one of the top 50 most unique museums in the country, and quite possibly it could be also one of the most haunted. Is the Glore Psychiatric Hospital haunted? That is for you to decide. Another place to visit Missouri. Sounds good to me. Everything's in the middle of the country, it always feels like. We'd love to have you guys check out our website at historyghostbump.com. And if you'd like to send us some feedback, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com. Want to thank Savannah for writing us. She had been listening to some of the past episodes and she got to the Poe show. And so she wanted to know if we'd heard the story about Edgar Allan Poe and how he had fallen in love with Anna Ravenel, who was the 14-year-old daughter of Edmund Ravenel, who had been a friend of Poe. And so he and Anna kind of fell in love with each other and the father did not approve. And then she ends up dying from a illness. And so then later on in life, of course, Edgar Allan Poe wrote the poem Annabelle Lee. And that's who he was writing about was her. And of course, she's buried in the Unitarian Church graveyard in Charleston, which we have seen. Not her, but the churchyard. <laughs> right. And so I let her know that, yes, we had heard about that. And as a matter of fact, I let her know that Pleasing Terrors, Mike Brown did an excellent episode on that. It was really good. And I think he's one of the, I don't know if he was one of the first people, but he was one of the people to discover the story behind this whole thing. And apparently, Anna haunts that graveyard and shows up in a white dress every so often, I think. Very cool. So thanks for making sure that we knew about that. Yeah, absolutely. We appreciate it. And thank you to Kathy, who wrote us an email letting us know that she's really been enjoying Best Fiends. Oh, yay. <laughs> so I was glad to hear that. I'm like, uh, thank you for supporting some of our advertisers, because that definitely helps us out as well. Yeah, the game's a blast, and we definitely appreciate you getting connected. want to thank you guys for joining us for this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Join me in the cemetery by becoming an executive producer. You can join on Patreon or PayPal. Check out the Support the Show tab on the website for more information. They chose the city of St. Joseph as the site for the St. Lunatic. <laughs> what? For the St. Lunatic? Who is St. Lunatic? Who would the Catholics actually dub as St. Lunatic? I'm sure there's a whole bunch of them. You know, some I of those popes. St. Joseph, okay? <laughs> some of those popes were crazy. They chose the city of St. Joseph as the site for the St. Lunatic. They chose the city of St. Joseph as the site for the St. Lunatic. I can't stop with successes, 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 successes. It's just my sloppy s's, and they drive me crazy. They chose us. It is there something about lunatic asylum that is just causing you some issues? I think so. Do we need you to hit get the you nail a straight on the head? <laughs>
<laughs> Make sure it's lined. <laughs> okay. Take 553. A typhoid outbreak in 1893 was kept in a minimum. 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 All patients were required. He also installed pipes with small ho- hose. <laughs> I don't know. Small hose. I, 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 I don't even know what to say. <laughs> Oops. <laughs> we're in some kind of way today. I don't even know. We're going on vacation. That's why. That may be the yard work in like 90 degree, 100% humidity. It could be our brains are fried. <laughs> Who were not able to remain still. Steel. Steel. <laughs> it's kind of like it could kill. Yes. <laughs> Fortune and fire. This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. Save big money when you start your next project today at Menards. Convert your current recessed lighting with energy-saving LED downlights from Fight Electric. They're bright and install easily in just minutes. They also go from regular lighting to nightlight mode with just a simple flip of a switch. Save big on all Fight Lighting products now at Menards. Shop our lighting options today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money. 